big decisions, paths followed, choices made. This is Connections, conversations about life and work. I'm your host, Jim Allen. David Moulton has made the long trip to visit me today. How are you doing, David? Just fine. Good to I, see you, Jim. I can't remember the last time I've seen you. It's been a long time, like at least 20 years. Yes. At least 20 years. So, some <laughs> website says this. Uh, David has been a faculty member at Douglas College. You teach sales and marketing since 2004 and has also instructed at Kwantlen Polytechnical University and the University of the Fraser Valley. David has written several case studies that focused on sales management issues. So how are you doing? Good. It's good. been a long time. Yeah. We, I always like to tell people how we're connected. Right. And we were talking about this, of course, before we start rolling. I exactly. have to say, yeah. save it. Yep. Save it for the show. <laughs> um, uh, and it's through Moreland's Camp. Yep. Now, I worked there uh, on and off for a long time. Uh, we weren't there at the same time. No. But you were always around. <laughs> you were always around. Why? Uh, how did you get involved? You worked there in the yeah, 70s, so right? It was, uh, I only worked there the one summer. It was the Moorlands. It was uh, 77, 1977. And I didn't have a summer job. Right. And uh, there was an ad. I, I, I was actually collecting unemployment. And, you right. know, they had a bulletin board back in those days. Right. And they had this assistant director position at Moorlands Camp. So right. I applied, and I met Doug Berry, and he hired me. And so I worked the whole summer. So at the beginning, I guess it must have been part of May and and end of June. I worked downtown on uh, by the diocese office by you know the right. St. James Cathedral. There was a, right. an office in the basement, the Anglican Church. Yeah. And then we then you go up to camp. You know, July, early, whatever it was, late June, right. early July for the, and then you have the four two week periods, right? And then the break at the at the end of July. When you come down for three or four or five days, and then go back right. up and finish up, just before right. Labor Day. Now, were your parents were involved? They were uh, no, no, uh, not no. in the church, but they were. weren't they donors for a long time? I used to see their name on lists and things. Well, they they may are they have, donors because of you, or yeah, were you? Well, it, would, of... <clears throat> it would have been that because right. um, <laughs> they were good Catholics. I mean, we're not. Oh, okay. You know, so you know, Moorlands was an Anglican, so they, right. they were at least they were. Uh, so they felt guilty about you know, donating I don't to know. an Anglican church. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it was a it was a it was a great experience. Probably the <clears throat> the best summer job I ever had. Right. I mean, when if you remember, you could look out onto the water. Why didn't you go the, back? Um, You're a- Doug Very uh, sat me down in September, October, and said, "I just don't think you fit in." Oh. You know. Uh, well, what I was. I, well, I was. Um, I well, I don't know. I, I mean, you'd have to ask him, but he's gone now. So uh, I think largely it was that I was I I, I was very participating i participated a lot right in all of the events and somehow that didn't you know <laughs> as an ass- assistant director you were supposed to be a little more serious and a little more oh, uh, okay. you know aloof and i yes. just that was not my well that's not i, my I do remember you as being uh, kind of the life of the party type thank so you we will <laughs> that's probably how we know each other is yeah. probably i probably met you at a party so well uh, you you knew barb turnbull yeah that, we spent time Oh, was it? It was not. It was not the canoe. What was it called? Port, the what what Fall. happened was well, yeah. we talked about this yeah. before we started rolling. But uh, Barb went to Moreland's yeah. camp. She was a counselor, and In, it's almost hard to believe. But it's almost forty years since she was. A, you know, it's hard to even talk about attack. Yeah. But she was shot. Yeah, and paralyzed. Yeah, and uh, from almost, the neck down. Yeah, so she became a quadriplegic, and she actually uh, made. Did amazing things in her life. Absolutely. Uh, she went to journalism school yep. at the University of Arizona for yep. four years yep. and worked at the Toronto Star yep. for decades. Yep. So the Portageathon happened a couple months after, and it was just it was the in camp, the, it was, they, it was they, late it was, fall of '83, if I remember. The camp right? counselors at the time, yep. and uh, they did. It was more symbolic than uh, they weren't raising a lot of money because they didn't have a lot of money. But yep. they actually portaged up to Sunnybrook Hospital where right. she was recuperating. Yeah. And uh, you helped me. You drove me around. Uh, we I had some sort of yep. camera. Yeah. And uh, we made. I made a little video of it. But you drove me ahead of the. So yep. I didn't have to walk in the. Porta- right. That was my main motivation. I didn't yeah. have to walk in the or carry a canoe. <laughs> That's right. So we skipped ahead. Yep. 
And uh, so anyway, but yeah, so you and, and uh, what I remember was we you ran out of power at one point, and we knocked on somebody's door. They actually, I think they gave us muffins too. But she allowed. Anyways, us. so I stayed in touch with Barb over the years, and I went right. and she came when she came out to Vancouver on a couple of occasions. She'd always let me know. Right. And our, you know, my my wife and our girls got to know her, um, and. I would always visit her. She had the condo on Church Street. Um, yeah, now the St. Lawrence Market area, yeah. the Market Square. Yeah. And the one conversation, I, I, I don't know how it came up, but the one conversation was she basically said, you know, we have to do more as a society. We have to do more for right. the disabled. Right. And she, she fully recognized that she was very lucky in terms of her disability. One, she got shot working at Becker's. So she got covered by WCB, right? A lot of people have injuries and don't have any right. uh, um, so, social safety net to rely on. The other thing she, she was lucky about is because uh, she was became good friends with Dini Petty. Yes. And anytime WCB got bureaucratic and whatever and wouldn't you know do what they were supposed to do in terms of supporting her, and she would go to Dini, and Dini would raise a Ruckus. Yeah. And she had her own talk show for a long yeah, time. Exactly. Yeah. And then WCB would back off and, and do whatever was required oh, to make boy. right. And the uh, it's same thing with the star. She was very fortunate. The star hired her. I remember she was saying that they reconfigured a whole washroom area just for her because of her particular kind of disability. But so she saw herself as being very lucky. You know, they were you know, people supported her. She has her she had her foundation and all of those things. But she said, you know, the numbers are terrible, that dis disabled people, uh, you know, the employment is, I, I think it's well over 50%. It's, it's, it's a, an atrocious. Unemployment of disabled, disabled people. people is, right. is, you know, is, is very high. And so I, I wanted to have the opportunity just to say, if only for awareness to those people who are watching, that, you know, one of the things we need to do as a society, forget, you know, things like the, minimum uh, or guaranteed annual income is one thing, but, you know, actually consciously thinking about how can we integrate disabled people uh, into the workplace. So I just wanted to, you know, in, in if, if nothing in memory, because Barb was a wonderful person. I, I really, you know, I I remember when we got to the end of that uh, portage-a-thon, she came out with the halo on her head. Remember? Because she, uh, okay. I don't know if you remember. And and, and she smiled. I mean, she was, you know, I wouldn't say, I don't know, beaming is the right word, but, you know, that she just had such a positive, I mean, I don't know how any of the, uh, the rest of us would have handled that situation. Yeah. But I remember somebody, I think it was Neil Young, who was an MP, uh, and New Democrat MP. Yes. His, his, he, called the, he called us tabs. We're temporarily, temporarily able-bodied. Yes. So tabs tend to forget that there are a whole other group of people who have a disability of one sort or another. Uh, and I suppose I have a disability in the sense of my, my glasses, right? But it's not, it's not a disability. It's a disability that doesn't, hasn't you can still hindered my career. And, I, yeah, you know, I can have, still get on know, a plane. Right? But, but if, if I ever was without my glasses, I, you know, I'm as blind as a, almost blind as a bat. So, yeah. So you're a capitalist who cares. That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> of this conversation. Uh, speaking of capitalism here, just dragged him. <laughs> yeah. um, didn't you one uh, run once or twice as an NDP? Candidate? I ran uh, twice federally. Yep, seventy nine and eighty, in, uh, and Bra I ran Brampton or something. Yeah, Brampton. Yeah, and I ran provincially. I got run over by Bill Davis in nineteen eighty one. So, so. Uh, literally, or yeah. okay, they should, they should <laughs> well, have electorally certainly. Yes. Can you be a capitalist and? And oh, yeah. also be a card-carrying member of the oh, NDP. Yeah. You know, being a social democrat doesn't mean that you don't. I mean, um, I think you have to be prepared to understand. You know, there are some contradictions. Obviously, I mean, I made very good money, and I guess as a capitalist, you know, people say, you know, how can you be a, a new democrat? Well, it's it was easy. I mean, I did my job, and I got I got remunerated for it. Right. Um, but it doesn't mean I'm I don't believe that. You know, there should be a, a good social safety net. So, for example, one of the things I think that we have not done a good job of in this country is guaranteed annual income. 
Right. We, we, it's been around for like 50 years at least. There was that um, trial they did in in the in Manitoba, I think it was Winnipeg, right. you know, back in the 70s, and it 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 is it actually is a workable concept. Just lifts up everyone, I guess. Well, that's yeah, and 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 you got a um, bit of that when there was that uh, I mean, during the pandemic the f- with CERB, right? Suddenly, um, yeah. But look uh, at the a food. lot of people got checks, but yeah. guess what? They spent the checks. Like it, it stimulated the economy, and a lot of people are yeah. bitter but, about it in hindsight. But that's literally what that it's yeah. giving people money to buy something, stuff, food, sure, whatever it is. Yeah, and it's so it's, um, yeah. I mean, there there's there are really good arguments to be made for those you know that kind of a program. I don't know if you saw recently, but the farmers that like the PharmaCare program, they've actually did a study that showed that you would actually save money by providing people with uh, drugs for free, their pharmaceuticals for free, because right. it would drop the number of hospital visits and the number of calls. You know, all of the various things that where you would save money by doing something else. And as a salesperson, right. that's, I mean, when I was at Pitney Bowes, that was one of the key things I would talk about was this, if you take this piece of equipment, this is your productivity, this is what you're going to save. And so there's it. It actually is a decent investment. So well, that's why I think I when I think of you, I think sales salesman. I know you teach sales yeah. and marketing. Yeah. Marketing is like a fancy term, but right. I think of you. You were you worked at um, uh, when I knew you. It's the McLean Hunter. Like they had a lot of magazines and print stuff. Right. So I, I worked now for bought by uh, Rogers. Rogers. Right? Yeah. And you worked a lot of other places too. Right. So I yeah my my sales career started actually by accident, like most sales careers. I we had. I was at the symposium earlier this last week, uh, Canadian Sales Educator Symposium, and I asked the question in the room, how many of you woke up when you were 10 years old and said, I want to be a salesperson? Of course, right. nobody puts their hand up. So most people end up in sales by accident, and that was my story. I was looking for a job because uh, I had decided to drop out of my doctoral program at York because right. I didn't see any future in ac- being an academic. So that would have been 1978. So you're trying to tell me you're smart. Is that what you're trying to well, drop in that little well, bit of information? You know, you're smart. Well, okay. I, smart can be used in a number of well, ways. Well, you're smart enough prob- to drop out of a doctoral program, yeah, right. which well, is a just, smart two decisions there, yeah. go into and getting out of <laughs> Get out of it. So the Globe Mail ran an ad and I uh, for, for two people to sell classified advertising, and I was one of the two selected. Right. And so I learned how to sell on the telephone selling classified advertising, which really doesn't exist anymore. But right. um, so I did that for a year, hated it because you're in this right. little cubicle. It's telemarketing, right. right? You're in this little cubicle. Telemarketing. Uh, and, but you, you, I learned how to sell on the phone. And then there was an ad in the Globe and Mail for some, for a rep at Pitney Bowes. So I went and applied there and got the job at Pitney Bowes. So I learned how to sell in person. And right. I really enjoyed that. Right. And that's why I, I want to talk to you because you're I, I got you're a real live sales guy. So you're not offended <laughs> that I call you a sales salesman. Like life, I don't know. I, no, it's not a, death of a salesman. It's life of a salesman, right? right. Well, so. it but but in fairness, it took me probably 18 months to realize that it was a profession. Right. Right. I, I kept looking for something else, and right. and didn't really take sales too seriously. Anyways, at some point, I made the transition where I went. This is not. At some point, the money starts rolling in. Well, the money's your mind. It, well, the money's good, and the hours were great. Right. I mean, you could you could be your own person. I was, uh, you know, I've I've got, you know, the the thing is, you could if you made your numbers, you could do whatever you wanted. Right. right? So, I mean, I would sneak off to a roll movie in late or, and or take off, off early. A, I remember right. playing bowl, you know, bowling in the mid mid afternoon because right. you'd made your quota. You know, no, there was no there was no uh, urgency to to, to to so there was a lot of flexibility. Right. So, um, and then from fr- with, within Pitney Bowes, uh, I got promoted to head office to do sales training and sales management training at their training center, which was at right. Don Mills. And I did that um, up until the crunch of the 1982 recession, which a lot of people right. don't remember. Right. And the I organization- was I was in school then. So. You know, okay, well, the organization didn't do a particularly good job of right. handling that the recession, uh, including- me, they put me back in the field, and I went. So this is this is it. Right? I'm back in the field. So I said, okay, I I, I did. I went back and right. did just fine. And then I said, no, I I want to move on. So that's when I moved to McLean Hunter. Right. 
and I worked for Marketing Magazine for a period of time, and then right. I moved on to McLean's. But you also yeah. worked. You worked at Scotiabank and CIBC. Yeah. You worked for banks. I think you worked. You well, moved tra- out west. That was the tra- tra- you, you, transition. So, so you so, moved out yeah. west later. Okay. Yeah. So what happened was the. Um, so when I was at McLean's, um, they had a contest in 1985 that if you made your numbers, you got to go to Expo 86 in right. Vancouver. Right. So I remember Mary and I were mar- newly married. She, right. We got married in May of 85. And through the last part of 85, I'd come home and she'd say, what did you sell today? Because she really wanted to go back to Vancouver. I had never been. Right. So uh, I made my numbers. So we all went on, in 86, we went off to Vancouver, turned it into a basically a honeymoon because we were right. there for three weeks. And I said, you know, if I ever get an opportunity, I want to move. I want to move to Vancouver. That's beautiful. So uh, a good friend of mine from college, which interestingly enough, we never really agreed on very much when we were in college. Helen Sinclair um, was a senior person in the planning at Bo- Scotiabank. And she said, you know, we're trying to uh, reorient the retail network of the bank. And we want somebody with a sales and customer service orientation as part of this task force. So I was the outsider. I came in. There was a series of people who had different expertises, HR, operations, whatever. Um, They were part of the group. And so I was there for about two years. And, uh, you know, Helen went on to become the first woman president of the Canadian Bankers Association. So I lost my political protection and... Uh, uh, was dismissed. Right. And then I got an opportunity through a friend at CIBC to apply for a district manager's position. And they said, would you like to go to Vancouver? And I said, yes. Right. And so that's how I end up in Vancouver. So our, our older daughter was just turning three, and our younger one, was at, Alexander, was born there in Vancouver. So it was great because we didn't have the challenge of moving your kids you know in the middle of their teen years or whatever so it was it was uh yeah so i went there and again the same thing happened i lasted about two years and uh, the fellow who hired me got promoted to run cibc mortgage and the guy who replaced him uh, he and i certainly did not get along because i got i got canned there too so so i mean i you know you're again you're a sales yeah sales guy and so I thought I'd pick your brain a bit. Okay, sure. Just about selling in general. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Pitney Bowes, Globe Mail, there's media. You've sold media. Mm-hmm. You've sold different things. Yeah. Bank, banking services. Sure. Um, when you're, does it matter, do you, does it matter what you're selling? Yeah. It, it, do you need to believe in what you're selling? Oh, first of all, yeah. I mean, I, I. I'll tell you why. Because there's guys out here that are like CFO type guys that I know here. Right. And I don't think they care about what they they they're selling. They're they could it could be widgets. Mm. They're just capitalists. They just they're just capital. But it helps you believe you need oh, to believe in what you're selling. I believe. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, this is me. You know, from a personal point of view, uh, absolutely. If you don't believe in what you're selling, it's very very difficult. I mean, maybe if you're a psychopath, right. you can get away with it. But I think most people in a sales position have to believe in what what it is they're promoting right uh, some is some, some are easier than others obviously but and tangible versus intangible so like at pitney bows you're selling equipment so you could actually demonstrate the equipment right to put it in the office let the people see how it worked advertising was was different and right. in some ways a little more difficult because you're selling you know it's not how how do people respond to the ad well you it's you know there is some research but it's not right. as tangible as watching you know letters fire you know uh, flow through a, a machine and to mm-hmm. increase productivity that sort of thing yeah. so um but i would say that uh, you know there's three things uh, there's a wonderful book by daniel pink called drive and he talks about three things it's about motivation right and what he he talks about three things you have to have mastery so knowing what you're talking about knowing right. what you're doing uh and that you know, and then he, I think he throws in the ten thousand hour rule that what's his name, uh, Malcolm Malcolm Gladwell, Gladwell, Gladwell yeah. talked about. And I, I I think there's that there's some truth there's, to that. There is some truth to that. All right. As, you know, some people are natural, but most of us have to work at it to right. get to get where we are. He talks about autonomy. 
So the uh, idea of thing, being able to do your own thing, um, be your own boss and not be micromanaged. And the last thing, I always forget whether it's purpose or passion. It doesn't really matter, but it's the same thing to your earlier question about you know, believing in what you do. If you believe in what it is you're talking about or you're trying to promote, and it can apply to ideas as well as to products and services, right. then it's really important that, that you have that sense of commitment. I think, and one of the things I think you're seeing with the new generation, as I'm hearing from you know, people talking about the new generation, is that they're much more interested in that than maybe our generation was. Right, believing take, in what we take doing. A, We would take a job. Having an ethical or... A, yeah, or, yeah. Yes. and it, I'm, I'm making a difference yes. in the world. Yes. Like a positive difference. Just do no harm kind of thing. Like, well, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I can get that. Yeah. So why did you decide to teach? This? Well, I, if, you, if you recall, I mean, go back to my two years as a doctor, a doctoral student, I actually taught. One year I taught American history as a t teaching as a assistant, TA. and then I taught Canadian history, actually with Irving Abella was the, the prof. Um, so I, I did have the teaching, some teaching experience and, and liked it. The reason I left the doctoral, doctoral program is by the time I got to the doctoral stage, all the jobs were filled. What were and you studying? What were you studying? Canadian history, Canadian oh, So you want to maybe be a history professor? Yeah, maybe, so but the chances 20 were, of those jobs were slim probably, to none. Right. So I, you know, I just made a decision. Um, and then when I was at Pitney Bowes, I end up in the classroom teaching sales and sales management uh, to, uh, you know, to, to, uh, as a corporate entity. And then mm -hmm. when I did my own consulting, I did a lot of training of various organizations. So, you know, I've, I've been in front of people. It wasn't a, it wasn't a big, it wasn't a big move to go from that to the classroom. So, you know, 40 years later, after getting my, my master's, it, it, it paid off. The master's was really not a particularly useful degree in, in sales, but it turned out that- So you got a master's in what? In history. In history, in okay. History. At, uh, and so but that it allowed, allowed me- it allowed you Allowed to me to teach at the, at the college level. Yes. And I'd taken the, uh, UBC had a pro, has a program called uh, Sales and Marketing Management. And I convinced my spouse to allow, you know, to allow me to take three years away, well, away from the family uh, for every Monday night and several nights doing my homework to uh, to get that, so that uh, to do that, and I graduated in 99, which gave me the credentials around marketing and sales right. from from an academic point of view. But is it, you know what, it, it, you're stumbling on something here. It is a smart thing to do if you have the time to do it, to get a master's even part-time, because I did not. Okay. But a lot of my contemporaries, like when later in their careers, things dry up, you can teach, maybe. I can't, but it would have been smart of me, but I was maybe too busy or whatever, and there's other stuff going on. Yeah. I have students who ask me, is it worthwhile doing my education? And, I'll, and I say to them, I- Education in general. In general. Right. And I'm, you know, like getting a degree, is that gonna help me? And I, right. all I say to them is, look, I, I don't know where the future is going, but all I can tell you in terms of my experience, having a degree, or degrees in my case, gave me much more flexibility and much more uh, potential in terms of my career. I right. was never restricted because of any educational qualifications. Well, you're classic. You're right into liberal arts. That argument, it's like, and it, yeah. but it does open doors for you. Well, yeah. but the thing too is it, and I think it helped me in terms of my sales career is the critical thinking. I mean, right. people don't re, you know, I I am a real fan of the liberal arts. I mean, I did not go to business school. I am teaching in a business school, and. What I find interesting for, for me is that maybe it's my liberal arts background, but I do not rely on a single textbook. I find some of my colleagues will use a single textbook, and I'm going, no, no, no. There, there's no truth in one book. So I always, even my introductory courses, I have more than one book that the students need to read. And in my sales management, I probably have four or five texts. So you teach more than one class then? One yeah, I, I, yeah, I, we, you know, my uh, repertoire, as it were, I teach introductory marketing. We have an okay. introductory sales course called Personal Selling. I've taught business marketing, international marketing, 
sales management and an, an upper level sales force called professional selling. All right. Among so that's probably my uh, you know, the extent. I've stayed away from market research. Right. <laughs> it's right. Not, I I was never very good at uh, uh, algebra or or uh, statistics. So um, you know let, I'll let somebody else handle that. So I had an aspiring stand-up comedian sitting in your chair, right. and uh, he had his lifelong dream was to be a stand-up comedian. Right. right. Uh, he actually went to community college. I can't remember which one to right. be. And it, there's a there's course a yep, in stand-up yep. yep. comedy, and so I I asked him, "Can you teach funny?" And then you know, can you? But my question for you is, can you teach someone to be a salesperson, or are you born born yeah. with those qualities? Well, one of the myths I think of sales is that you'll hear a lot of people say. They have to have the gift of the gab. You got to be able to, right. you know, chat people up and blah blah. You know that sort of. And my experience is the really good salespeople aren't big talkers. They ask good questions. They do their research and and make sure that when they're in front of the customer, they ask them really good questions, and then they listen. And then you know they confirm it back or you know and and make sure that they've heard whatever correctly. So can you, yeah, I think you, you don't have, there are people who have some natural talent for sales, but there are a lot of techniques that you can um, convey in, and they can learn. Because like, well, do you have to be an extrovert? I mean, when I look no, at you, no. when I think of Dave Bowen, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, um, a lot of these qualities, you're arguably born with them. So right. you're extroverted, charismatic, yeah. charming, funny, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> All the things I'm not. You can't teach that. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, were your parents extroverts? Where do you get, where yeah. did you get all that from? Well, it's, what's interesting is my dad was a credit manager. Right. So I was, I was telling you. So he you was know, hilarious, in other words. Yeah, well, well, two things. One is that uh, I'm the oldest of nine, and four of us ended up in sales. Nobody ended up in credit. Oldest of nine. So, yes, you mentioned before you were Catholic, yeah, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. So, okay. yeah. Well, I'm a recovering Certain Catholic. things are lining, lining up <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah. But, to, you know, so my dad was, uh, you know, credit manager. So, you know, it, which is often seen as the opposite of sales because oftentimes credit managers will tell salespeople they can't make the deal because they haven't cleared credit. Um, but, um, no, my, my parents were both, I think, rather than uh, introvert or extrovert, they were just active in the community there were you know volunteers and that sort of thing and that's part of it as well uh, so you know it's so if it's, you had students i mean you've had a lot of students you've yep. been there almost 20 years if they're just like painfully intro introvert would you counsel them to maybe find have you done that to find well, something else or yeah well it, it again it depends on the young, student though. You know, I mean, no, because what's if you there's a book by again Daniel Pink has written two very good books one is Drive which I just described and the other one that I use actually in my introductory sales course is called To Sell as Human and what he has found through his study and I think he had 7000 uh, respondents it was it's actually a fairly detailed study but he called them ambiverts that is you had an element of invert and an element of extrovert. So if you're too extroverted or too introverted, you're you're not going to be as successful as a salesperson. So okay. you need to be and it's true for a lot of things. You, so you need can to just be, be too much. You can be You can yeah. Well, it's so in sales they have, there's this contradiction or between ego drive on the one hand, right? And uh, empathy on the other. And so what I tell students is it's you want to be somewhere in the middle with both of them because if you're too empathetic, you're never going to ask for the order. Right. If you're too ego-driven, you're going to beat up and, and run over your, your customer. So there's so if you have, um, you know, uh, 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 you're in the range in the middle in terms of both empathy. So I have enough empathy to understand where you're coming from, but I've got enough ego-drive that if I really believe in what I'm promoting – I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask you for the order, right? Okay. So I, I, there's every once in a while I write something down if I hear and it resonates with me. Sure, right? and, sure. And it's like it's kind of like what you're talking about, asking for the sale. Like no one told me that for years and years and years. I, I didn't study sales, but yeah. yeah. But then I hear somebody say that. Remember to ask for the sale, and 
makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, so, but the, but the but the thing is that a lot of people get hung up on the close and what a lot of the research is. I call it the reverse triangle. That is, in the old days, if you look at a triangle at the top, starting the sales process, right. and and then down to the bottom and the the wide end of the triangle, that was the close. So you'd see advertising for heavy closer, big closer, you know, strong closer. Well, what they discovered, Wilson Learning really came through with this, is that it's actually the reverse, that the triangle starts at the top. If you develop a relationship with somebody, but more importantly, qualify the opportunity properly, ask the right questions and know that there's, there's actually a situation here that you can help the client. By the time you get down to the close, I think Wilson Learning, it was around 3%. So asking for the order was actually a fairly easy thing to do if you had done all the other steps yeah. in advance. So I tell students that if you do the, if you follow the process reasonably well, you have every right to ask for the order, right? And take it from there. So I po- a podcaster I listen to defines sales as follows. And there's all these pithy definitions yeah, yeah, yeah. out yeah. there. So sales is trying to convince someone else that they need something that they might not realize they need, whether they need it or not. Can you follow that? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I still think at the end of the day, you know, both parties have to feel that they got value from the transaction. Like from a win, the you know, a win-win. A win-win. No, and you know, people go uh, just you know, to I'm feel going, good. Yeah. Well, you know, they. So that's why, as a salesperson, it's really important that you articulate value, and that's. So if there's been a revolution in sales, it's been that the advantage I had going back to my Pitney Bowes days, is I was the keeper of product knowledge. Right. So you called me and said, I think I may need a mailing machine, or I may need a copier, right. or I may need a photo or server. Or I would go in and take a look at all your paper and say, I think maybe you could, we could do something here, right? And then I would ask questions and qualify. And then I would, but I was, but I knew all the product information. The internet comes along and the paradigm complete changes because now people show up, and I've had salespeople tell me that they show up from a customer calls them and they show up and they've got all the their information, their company's information, plus all their competitors' information on the desktop or on the table. And the problem is they're confused. They don't know one from the other. They don't know what the differentiations are. Right. And so what do they do? The default is always to price. Why is your solution $300 or $3,000 or whatever it might be more expensive than company be here and so salespeople have got to find more ways to add value than product knowledge won't cut it anymore right and so that's what i tell students if you're really going to move if you're going to be a professional salesperson these days you really have to think about how am i going to make this person's business better it isn't flogging product and, and so the other thing is that salespeople, if you think about it, are change agents. Your client has status quo. This is how they're doing things. Right. And you're trying to move them to something different. And what do you have? Inertia. So my biggest competition, and I've, you know, I've sold against a lot of different organizations, was inertia. They'd rather not do anything. They wouldn't make a decision. Or they would say no. You know, so you can you can compete against IBM and Xerox and all these other companies, uh, but at the end of the day, actually, most of the competition is the internal inertia of an organization trying to convince and get everybody lined up to think and to see that the, there is value in the change that you're proposing, and then then you have to deliver on the promise. I've made a promise to you that your business is going to be better, better if, you, be. if if you if you accept my proposal. So the sale isn't over. Now I have to go. So you're really connecting on a kind of a cerebral level, right? You're well, there no, there's no, uh, there's always an emotional element to sales too. You right. know, do do I like the person I'm dealing with, both you know, as a seller mm-hmm. and as a buyer? Mm-hmm. And I guess that's one of the. I was saying that to the, I was at this uh, sales Canadian sales educator symposium uh, last that's week, right. and I did a presentation on teaching sales management in Canada, and. Uh, 
you know, what I was saying is that really, uh, you know, you have to um, really try and understand where your your client's coming from. Right. And, and you know, so that's where the empathy plays, plays right. a role. Right. But on the other hand, you also have to, you know, have that, what, whether it's ego drive or that personal ambition to make, to make sure that you, you make your numbers. And, and I say to students, like, it's like having, you have to have a short-term eye and a long-term eye. I've got to have my short-term eye on what am I going to get done this month and what am I going to get done in the quarter often. But mm -hmm. I always have a long-term eye. Where am I going to be three years from now with my clients? And, you know, can I develop um, business over the next three years by developing relationships. So you, you have to have a short term and a, and I would argue a long term uh, uh, pers perspective. Because if you only have a short term perspective, you're going to burn bridges. If you have a long term perspective, all you're going to do is make you know your the sales aren't going to happen because you you've got to do a combination of both. Back when you were starting out, did you ever did you do cold calling at all? Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you believe in it? Does it work? Well, what I argue today, yeah, it does. I mean. The, um, it's better than doing nothing. Is that happening? oh, absolutely no, no. Well, but 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 pre-internet, cold calling was a way of, of generating business. I mean, right. I, I I was a quick story. I was my first uh, month or so, and they may have been my first client. But I'm I'm in an office tower somewhere in Etobicoke, deepest darkest darkest Etobicoke, and there's this door, and all it has is a number on it. There's no nameplate. There's no nothing. So I walk through. And I introduced myself as the Pitney Bowes rep. And the woman says, oh, our machine is in the back. Well, I, I don't know. I, there was no record of a machine. So I go around to the back. And there's a competitive machine. But Pitney Bowes had such a market uh, dominance or, you know, brand name that she assumed it was a Pitney Bowes machine in the back. They were not happy with their machine. So I said, well, listen, I can bring you a, a machine that will actually do the job better this one so uh, that was where i put a demonstration machine in um, and like two weeks later i got my first sale but i didn't know anything walking through that door um, and those days are i think are gone now in the sense that if i went to that door i could punch in the the uh, suite number right. and something i'm sure would come up on my iphone or, or my ipad right so i would at least know Turned out they were they sold and distributed contact lenses, so some I, I would think somebody pop up. So you 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 have the opportunity these days I think to have more of a warm call. You you know a little bit more right. because the internet just has so much actually, information. I, I remember going to job interviews, right, and not knowing anything about the com <laughs> company, and and then you kind of get the message, kind of a two or three interviews like that in yeah. like maybe you should research well, this again pre-internet. So what, I'm supposed to go to a library and like, <laughs> like look up, and, you know, like that sounds like a lot of work, but now there's no excuse. Yeah. I can, inter I can, I can research Dave Moulton, right? On the way. Well, I've, well, I've, and, 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 but that's, and this is where LinkedIn right. becomes, they, they, remember I mentioned that uh, uh, Rick Lambert made a presentation at the same symposium and he talked about how students really didn't get the importance of LinkedIn. And right. you know, in terms of both design, just starting out, you mean starting start, starting right. out, um, yeah. starting out, and you know, maintaining it and using it properly, right? Uh, and I think you know, he made a valid argument in my mind, and it's going to it's changed my approach. And when I get back to Vancouver, I'm going to try and be a little more active on my. I was a passive user on LinkedIn, be more active. Is that he's you know, and I he makes a valid argument that. LinkedIn is now going to surpass the resume as the as the that sort of area of uh, exp, you know exploring the the background of people uh -huh. that but but you know what he's basically saying if you have a mediocre whether you have a mediocre resume or a mediocre LinkedIn page you're actually doing yourself a dis, yeah. disservice right it's also just collecting connections that's what this the concept yeah. of this yeah. show is really it's co uh, connecting with people yeah but i also tell that to my daughters is like who are just really starting out it's just like you know you can like these summer jobs that you have you can just send like you can connect you never know two three years from now ten years from now 
I mean, someone just called, like, you know, I was telling you before, somebody I met 13 years ago, haven't worked for yeah. for 10 or 11 years, calls me up. Yeah. Because you kind of somewhat passively have yep. continued to be connected with them, right? Yeah. So, well, I was going to say that, um, and I was saying this at the, at this, at my, I'm sure my presentation, I was fortunate for two reasons, one by family. My dad was a credit manager, so I understood the importance of credit in sales. It, you don't have a sale until you've got the money. Right. So ma- getting to know the credit function and the credit people was really helpful. The other thing is that two of my summer jobs, I did procurement. So I worked for a com- company called Hall of Fame and a company called Federal uh, Pioneer, Federal Pacific, Federal, no, Federal Pioneer. Uh, and that gave me the viewpoint of what it's like to be on the buying side. So when I went into sales, I, I had a uh-huh. pretty good idea of what, you know, what people are looking for on the other side. I, I, I was never one of those, be, you know, heavy closers, like go, you know, like wait for, you know, deal with all the objections and close, close, close. I was much more, I mean, much more into the relationship and much more into the consultative type selling. Right. I'm going to have some fun for you, with you now. Okay. okay. Have you ever looked at Rate Your Professor? Yes. So, well, I, I have two, and I looked you up, and, uh, you know, so yeah. sometimes they're, it's not like the happy students that go there. It's the... Uh, it's self-selective. <clears throat> so, <laughs> apparently, you make your students read the books. Yeah, it's a terrible thing. And right? that's, and they're not, and they're disappointed in you for that. <laughs> so, you're not cool, Dave. I know. Um, and here's a quote, likes to talk. Likes to hear his own voice. That, well, now that I read, it doesn't sound like you at all. So, I, <laughs> I, so perhaps this has no well, credibility. Yeah, I mean, at all. no. I the rate your professor is self-selective. So yeah, it, it, you you get people who really love you, and you get people who <laughs> hate your guts, right? So, I you know what? I you have to have a thick skin, I think, don't you? And no, if you're in the public, in any capacity. Right? Yeah, so. you know, and and what I would say in terms of, you know, the. The role of instructor, I I try and do as best I can the Socratic method where you ask questions. But it's right. difficult sometimes to, to do the Socratic method if the students haven't read the book. Right. And I've had more instances that I like to remember where I've discovered, you know, after asking a few questions, that nobody in the class has picked up the book. Yes. So, I mean, I have an agreement at the beginning of the course. I say, you know, if... These these no these are the book. Right. I'm prepared to come and talk. Right. You know, I get pre- prepped and ready to come to have a conversation around whatever the, the topic might be. I expect you to do the same thing. But you know and, what? They're also probably at a stage of their life where they need to they're they're learning. They're growing up too, right? My kids are the same. Oh, and, yeah. Well, you know, there's a big difference between being eighteen and being twenty two or twenty five, right? Yeah. And and there is a big adjustment going from school to the real world and, yeah. you know and you're not you're going to have to read the book when you're yeah. fully employed well, somewhere i mean you know, one of the or, frust- whether it be a manual or whatever right yeah. so. i mean one of my frustrations in a business faculty is convincing students that they have to read a newspaper yeah i mean i don't care whether it's hard copy or online yeah. but yeah. you got to know what's going on in the world yeah my my they they find out they well, find Facebook out, but indifferently a, than we used to. Facebook right? is not a political, to me, or whatever. Do you still subscribe to a real newspaper? Like, I still subscribe okay. to, or I get a, like a, I get a home delivery of, of the Globe and Mail. I've right. been, you know, I grew up with the Globe and Mail. So right. You worked for the Globe and Mail. I worked so. for the Globe, but I actually read the, uh, my my parents had the Globe and Mail in the house right. all the time I was, you know, growing up. So, so in pre- preparation for talking to you, I mean, I used to use Google. Now I use Artificial intelligence. So I right. just asked AI, it yeah. how I asked artificial intelligence. Like I don't need to name the. There's a whole bunch of them now. Right. Uh, how to be a good salesman, and yeah. it spat out <laughs> fifteen things. Okay. Right. And they're all you know nothing you'd disagree with, but it's okay. pretty. So you know. So I'll ask you right. what what make just an open ended question. What makes a good salesperson? Well, let's go back to. Drive or drive, and and so you know, having some mastery, knowing what you, right. you have, some idea of what you're doing, and what's going on in the business. It's not so much the product knowledge is what's going on in business, and you know, what have you learned, and what what kind of questions can you ask of your client to get a better insight 
and to help them better understand their business. I mean, the, I mean, when I was at PwC, there was a partner. He was great to work with because I had clients who said, he asked me questions that we didn't realize we needed to know. You know, like we, we, we needed, there were great questions, but we didn't realize we, the situation we're in. And he opened up a whole new, you know, vista for us to consider in terms of right. going forward with our business. So, um, so uh, you know, learning to, learning to ask really good uh, quality questions and listening to them, summarizing them so that you can do something with them. You need to be, the, you, have, you need to have the thick skin. Yeah. You need to be able to accept that you're going to get mostly no's. So a lot of rejections. So, so resilience is really, right. really important. So, you know, one of the things I look for when I was recruiting, one of the things you look for is people who have failed. And it's not so much we all fail. It's how did you respond to the failure? Right. Did you quit? How, what did you learn? What did you, right. you know, what did, did you, what did you do differently? And um, so what else was sales? The so you would ask that in a, in a job interview. You would say, have you ever f- tell me something that you failed at and see what well, the, Behavioral in reviewing. Yeah. see so what tell the me, answer is. Yeah, yeah. So Jim, tell me about So people time. would lie to you and say, oh, I've never, I've never well, failed. Well, no, but you take notes. And then when you do your reference checks, you make sure that the story is actually true. Right. Okay. So it's- it, it, it's, But it takes a big person to sit, you know, if you're 20, early 20s, like to say that you've failed at something- yeah. Takes a certain amount of confidence, right? Yeah, to... yeah no, it's still t- difficult. I mean, I'm I'm well past the twenties, and and right. it's still difficult to to relate failures, uh, oftentimes. But it's 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 part of the learning, right? Right. And well, I was I was joking with the my, the editor that I was talking with earlier today. I mean, I just said I've learned, and I, I was saying it at the, the conference. I've learned far more from really bad sales managers than I ever learned from good sales managers. Because it's easy to pick out what they... Well, yeah, they're just, you know, they're just, they're terrible. And so you learn what, you know, what what not not to to do in the the future. But you just mentioned your editor, and that was my next question. You were were meeting your editor on your way over here. You squeezed in a meeting ahead of me. Um, (laughs) You're all burnt out. so, because uh, you're writing a book, so what's well, this book, or, or you're well, rewriting we're a book? at the proposal stage. So, proposal. Um, what happened was late last year. Well, let's roll it back. There was a when I first started teaching sales management in 2006. There were no Canadian textbooks for sales management. Right. So I had to use an American text, which I wasn't very happy about. So when you say sales management, you mean you're managing like corporate. Uh, at the corporate yeah. level, it's yeah. managing a sales force. It's, you know, so my focus so how is, to manage. My focus is enterprise force. business to business sales right. management. Okay. So Xerox, IBM, whatever. Right. Not retail. All right. Not business to consumer, but business to business. Right. Uh, so in 2008, Herb McKenzie put out a book called Sales Management Canada. And it was a very good book. But it it's out of date. So I went to Pearson probably a year or two ago. And said, "Are you going to revise this? You know, because I would be interested in if uh, helping." So out of date in which way? Is it just more well, because just a, there's no in, references to well, the internet it, or anything like know, that? Think, yeah, moves on and you must know, there be Pearson's. Uh... And, and I, I don't know why they didn't, but they didn't want to revise it. Maybe they they hadn't been a good sell. They didn't tell me. I just so some things said. I would think are eternal. Uh, some eternal truths about sales. No? Well, the other thing that's going on that we were talking about this morning was that the market's growing because more and more colleges, and I'm not so sure about all the universities, business schools, but I can tell you more and more colleges are taking are taking on sales programs and sales management programs because, go back to Pink, one out of nine of us ends up in some sort of sales role, right. professional sales role. So it's, a, it's probably... Yeah, Pink said, I think it would be the, if you put all the salespeople in the United States together, it would be the fifth most populous state. Right. So we're talking millions and millions of people you know, in it's, North America. Right? Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's, a growing, it's a growing discipline. Well, obviously not particularly well understood by a lot of, you know, non-salespeople. When you really. said obviously, you pointed at me. Was that? Uh, well, just no, 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 <laughs> in the sense that I'm, I'm, I'm using you as a foil, but. <laughs> I've had, you know, you're, you're with, right. But, yeah, uh, well, no, with non-salespeople, right? They, for example, they, um, I, I talked about this last week. 
A lot of non-salespeople think when you, if you've got straight commission salespeople, you just throw them out there and they'll take care of themselves and everything will be fine and you don't have to manage them. My experience with straight commission sales is you have to actually spend more time with them than if you have salary plus or what any any anything or um, uh, say a straight commission with with a uh, uh, draw against commission. But when you say manage, you're, you're supporting them. So right? we're supporting, supporting them, yeah, making sure that they're right. doing right <clears throat> because that the key to straight commission is you got to get them up the ramp quickly, otherwise they're not making any money. Right. And if if you leave them to their own devices, a lot of them are going to fail, and they're going to leave six months go- with no sales or whatever. Exactly. It's probably very, fairly common starting Ex- out. Right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you know, but that but they think because they're on their own and they're they have to, they have to um, what we used to call eat what you kill, right? You don't eat until you've made a sale. That they don't have to worry about them, and I I think that that's completely wrong. I think that. My experience has been that when you're in straight commission sales as a manager, you have to really work closely with your sales staff to make sure that they're up and running properly, and properly in the you know in like a, in a, a short period of time, like less than six months. So a growing market, but that's what the book's about, then. Well, the the book will be uh, well. Let's let's put roll, roll back. I'm at the proposal stage, so that's right. what uh, we were talking about today, and so. I've written a proposal outlining what the textbook would, would contain. And I've written a sample chapter. So what okay. I went, I'm basically at the green light. I've got to make a few changes that I was going to make on the proposal, but I never got around to it because I was busy worrying, <laughs> working on this presentation last week. So I'm going to do that in the next week or two. And the chapter basically is written. So And so what uh, my editor's going to do is once I've made my comments, she's going to put it into a package, send it off to some peer, to get some peer reviews in the marketplace. And then she's hoping that by uh, September, October, that she will have had, she'll get a decision from the company because they've got to make sure there's a business case for it, that that she's hoping that I'll, I'll have a go ahead by say the beginning of October. So then that would be when the real work starts. Thanks for coming. Well, listen, thank you. I I really, really appreciate the opportunity. It's good to see you again. Good to see you again, too. You're a long way from home. Yeah, well, I'm heading back tomorrow. So So, uh, it's good to see you. Hopefully it won't be another X number of years. No, I'm sure we'll find a topic to talk talk about. Good. Good to see you. Okay, take care. Thanks for listening. If you have a comment or if you want to be on the show, send me an email at connectionsvideopod at gmail.com. And please subscribe.